today we're going to look at something that I think is really cool. We're going to look at the feasts, and we've done this before, but when you look at some of the Lord's feasts, especially the fall feasts, you find that uh, they really seem to point a lot towards the Lord's coming. In the Bible, you have what are called fall feasts, and we study these in the fall, and you have springtime feasts. Now, what's interesting is this. You have the fall feasts really have not been fulfilled in Christ, although he is the perfect fulfillment of everything. The spring feasts speak a lot of the Lord's return. The spring feasts actually were fulfilled in Christ in the sense that the spring feasts, which would be the Passover, right? And, and what do we celebrate about, you know, a little around 40 days ago? The Passover, Easter, we, the Easter season. We celebrated that Jesus was the Passover lamb. Uh, also, uh, during in Israel, there was the Feast of Unleavened Bread that was a part of that. And they had something called the Feast of First Fruits, where the, um, it was one of the grain offerings, um, one of the barley, the barley offering. Uh, you were basically right after the Passover of that week, of, of, of right after the Sabbath of the Passover, they were actually to actually offer a first fruit of their barley harvest. And they were supposed to wave a, she, uh, um, a sheaf before the Lord. And it was their first fruits. It was the first of their barley harvest, giving their first fruits and best to the Lord, right? And it parallels, I believe, some of Jesus', re- Jesus resurrection, where First Corinthians says Jesus is the first fruits. Our resurrection, Jesus is the first fruit of our resurrection. It's, he's the best. He's the model. He shows that one day we're going to have a resurrection like his. So Jesus fulfills the Passover feast. He fulfills the uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He is the one who is unleavened. He is the one who is perfect. He fulfills the Feast of first fruits. It's a part of that. The barley harvest. The offering of the sheath. Jesus resurrected. Now, here's what's interesting. Do you know what happens 50 days after the Passover when you look at all the feasts that God gives Israel in the Old Testament? It's called the Feast of Pentecost. That's what, that's what God gives. Now, you might be wondering, like, Nick... You've been speaking about anxiety and worry. Why are you talking about this today? Because this coming Thursday on kind of the calendar for for Israel, you're going to find this coming Thursday at sundown, that starts a new day uh, uh, on the Jewish calendar, that Israel, Jews, will celebrate what's called the Feast of Pentecost, right? So take your Bible and go to Acts chapter 2. Here's what I want to look at. This is just a standalone sermon today. Uh, This is not... A part of a series. Next week, I'm going to look at uh, biblical hope for probably two weeks, and then we're going to jump back in. Lord willing, we're going to jump back into our series uh, on the Old Testament. So we're going to finish off uh, in Hosea chapter 12 and continuing on and finishing in the Minor Prophets. But I, I want to do this. I want to talk about the Feast of Pentecost, and you might be thinking, like, "Oh, this sounds boring." Um, but If you love the scriptures, you may see some things in this. So we're going to talk about the Feast of Pentecost because that feast is happening this Thursday is when it starts. Inside Israel, that feast usually lasts a day. Outside of Israel, it's usually celebrated by Jewish people for a couple days. Now, you may be wondering, well, I'm not Jewish. We've got a couple of Messianic Jews in our congregation. Like, why would we still talk about this? Well, a couple reasons. One is you may be in contact with somebody who's Jewish, all right? You may have a neighbor. I have a neighbor who's Jewish, right? You may have people you work with, acquaintances. What a great time to talk to them this week. What a great time to call them up on the phone or to Zoom them or to visit them. Uh, visit them. I, you'll probably have to do it in a social distance way, right? To visit them on their front porch and to talk about the Feast of Pentecost. What a great way to actually say like, hey, how are you going to observe the Feast of Pentecost this week? So typically, in a typical Jewish home, here's what happens at the Feast of Pentecost. Um, now, just hang with me. There's a lot of information I've got to give you. But at the Feast of Pentecost, a, a typical Jewish home, what they're going to do is, um, that evening, they're going to study the Scriptures. That's kind of a, a part of what happens at the Feast of Pentecost for Jewish people. And typically, they're going to study the first five books of the Old Testament. They're going to particularly study the Ten Commandments, And then they're going to look at some of the Torah, some of the first five books of the Old Testament. And then also they're going to read the book of Ruth. And in many Jewish homes, here's what they do. They eat nothing but kind of dairy products that night. And then they read and conversate. They'll like read parts of the Torah, take a break, uh, drink some coffee, eat some some cheesecake, uh, eat some challah bread. 
and uh, which kind of sounds like a really good evening already, like coffee, bread, cheesecake, you know, that, that I mean, like, you know, let's, let's go. I mean, maybe you might even get an invite. I mean, if you've got a Jewish friend, it might be like, hey, you know, in, in Acts chapter 2, the Gentiles were hanging out with Jewish people at the Feast of Pentecost, obviously, so uh, like, listen, hey, you want to get together and study the scriptures? You want to get together and read uh, Genesis uh, through Deuteronomy? Uh, do you want to you want to study the Ten Commandments together? You want to you want to talk about the Book of Ruth? I don't know. I mean, extend that invitation. You never know. Or or decide to do it as your own family. So you'll see even Jewish people and their families. What they'll do is it's kind of like their rhythm. Like they. And, and by the way, if you even want a rhythm for this, I've got an outline of how a family, even with kids, could creatively have like an all nighter. And just, I know what you may be thinking. An all nighter. That sounds so painful. But like. What would it look like? What it looks like for Jewish families who they just have an all-nighter. Um, I mean, it's like coffee, cheesecake, bread, scriptures, like enjoying the things of God, reading the Book of Ruth, because the Book of Ruth actually seems to have a setting during the time of the Feast of Pentecost. All right, so I'm telling you all this so that you'll have an opportunity, but also I'm telling you this because the Feast of Pentecost reveals something even even substantial for us as disciple makers. Now, let me lay some of these things out for you. Um, so first is this. The Feast of Pentecost. It's one of the three traveling pilgrimage festivals that Jews were supposed to, especially the men, were to come back to Jerusalem and visit. So when you read Acts chapter 2 and you see all these different Jewish people that are in Jerusalem at this time, these are people who are traveling, who uh, were, were outside of Jerusalem traveling, and they were there to offer the first fruits of what was called the wheat harvest. Right uh, After Passover... The first fruit of the barley harvest was offered with a wave of the sheath. But then 50 days later, there was in prescribed in Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 16 what was called kind of the second first fruits harvest. And it was the wheat harvest. You would offer the best of your wheat harvest. And, and particularly what you would do is, according to Leviticus 23, you would take that wheat and you would mix it with leaven. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. And you would create two pieces of bread, okay? It's often called challah bread. And these are two big pieces of bread. And you would offer that as an offering, as a wave offering before the Lord. Just like 50 days before, there was the barley sheaf that was a wave offering that was offered before the Lord. And this is what happened during this time. And basically, Jews would, who lived in Jerusalem and lived outside Jerusalem and from other countries, and they would come to these three, three different feasts in Israel. One was the Feast of Booths that would happen during the fall. One was Passover. And many would actually stay. They would come at Passover and stay for those extra 50 days and just kind of hang out if they lived far off and hang out all the way through what's called the Feast of Pentecost. And what they would do is they would bring their wheat harvest during that time. They would bring the first fruits, the best of their wheat harvest, and they would offer it at the temple. They would also offer other sacrifices and free will offerings. It was a joyous festival time for Israel. It was something that God prescribed in the Torah for the Jewish people to do. So when you look in Acts chapter 2, this is kind of the setting that's happening at what's called the Feast of Pentecost. Now everybody thinks, when you say the Feast of Pentecost, that this just happened, like the first Feast of Pentecost happened in Acts chapter 2. But I'm going to tell you, no it didn't. It actually existed way before that. A lot of people think the Feast of Pentecost is only when the Holy Spirit came. And I would say, that's when God had designed from his preordained plan that that's when the Holy Spirit would come. But that feast actually existed way before that. Now that word Pentecost is basically in the Greek means 50. It's basically 50 days after Passover. In the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew word that would match Pentecost, it would actually be, uh, Shav- uh, I'm going to say this wrong, uh, Shavuot. Shavuot and uh, Shavat. And so I said Shavuot, Shavuot. Shavat. Guys, I tried all week to practice this. You know what's really funny? I have this Hebrew uh, Logos program that will pronounce Hebrew and Greek words. And last night, I tried to practice it again. And guess who was next to me while I was practicing it? Cadence, right? And let me tell you, who do you think nailed the pronunciation of it? Cadence. Like, she nailed it. Arabella, they're probably watching this. Arabella was right next to her, like, like, just laughing how she could just nail it. But, so, Shavuot, Shabbat. You might hear me say it like that. Guys, sorry, it's just in my head. You're just going to have to go. So, Shavuot means 
weeks or seven weeks. It basically means seven weeks after the Passover, which kind of actually equals more. Seven weeks is 50, 49, but it doesn't start till the day after that Passover. So it actually ends up being 50 days. So the Jewish people, you'll hear them call the Feast of Pentecost uh, uh, Shavat. I'm just going to call it that. I'm, per, I'm butchering it. You'll hear Greek people say Pentecost. You hear us say Pentecost most of the time. So when I say Pentecost, we say uh, Shavat. It, it's, it's the same thing. It's just the Hebrew Jewish, you call it Shavat. We would call it Pentecost. Pentecost means 50. Shavat means seven weeks, seven Sabbaths. All right? That's your background history lesson. By the way, let me tell you this just as a side note. Um, you're wearing these masks. If you get to the point, someone said last week, like, man, I felt a little woozy after a while. Uh, it could have been the sermon, but it also could be that you just needed some fresh oxygen. So we, you can, no one's going to condemn you. If you feel like you need a breath of fresh air, just kind of go out the back, walk to the side, take the mask off, get a fresh breath, and then come back in. Totally fine, right? No one's going to look at you for that. So we have this feast, this festival that happens in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes. What significance do we see here for this? Is there anything in the text that, that, that we can learn? So I titled this message... Gleanings from Shavat, from Pentecost. Gleanings. Gleanings from Pentecost. So go to Acts chapter 2. I want to point out some things. Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes. We see a miraculous thing happen. There's all these different languages that are in Jerusalem. All these different Jews that are in Jerusalem. All these Gentiles who are Jewish proselytes are in Jerusalem at this time. And then all of a sudden, God is, is allowing um, like Jewish people to communicate to all these other Jews and these, Jew, and these Gentile proselytes to Judaism the message of God, which just happened with the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. And then Peter gets up and delivers this fabulous message. And then like 3,000 people get saved that day, right? A miraculous thing. The Holy Spirit comes and empowers. Jesus promised them that he would come and bring them this empowerment to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. Right, So that's what's happening in Acts chapter 2. Now, I want to read with you, and then what I'm going to do is this. I'm calling this gleanings and uh, gleanings from the Pentecost. Some of the things I'm going to tell you here in a little bit are... Um, well, let me say this. It's hard to be a Gentile and read a Bible that's, that's Jewish in its writing. Like its writers were mainly Jewish and coming from a Jewish perspective. So... Some of the things I tell you are going to be, don't walk around here and go, that's absolute core doctrine. I would say it's an interesting thought, right? So some of the things I tell you, just, just know this. I'm not telling you that's absolute, but I am telling you this. The way a Gentile reads the Bible is so literal to a point that you can't see the residue of what God's doing in the rhythm of the Old Testament, where the Jewish mind, when the Jewish mind reads their Old Testament and then they become followers and start reading the New Testament, they can see the traces and the residue of what God was doing through the feasts and festivals fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So some of the things I'm going to tell you, I'm just going to kind of point out and go, this is really interesting. I don't know if there really is a correlation, but boy, this is really interesting and it seems like it's no coincidence. Are you all with me on that? All right, so some of the things I tell you today will be some speculative things about what happened with the Feast of Pentecost in the Old Testament and what happened with it at Pentecost in the New Testament. And I'm going to go, man, that is a really interesting thought how it ties in. I can't say that's absolute, but I'm going to tell you that's very interesting. And listen, why am I doing this? Just because, listen, this week is is when that festival is celebrated. And earlier this year, the Lord kind of just convicted me and said, you know, the average person in your church has no idea about any of the Feasts of Israel wouldn't it do good for their soul if you just got to talk about some of them, all right? So that's why I did it in the fall, um, and I'm at least going to do this one, you know, here. This is the final feast on Israel's calendar before the summer. It's the Feast of Pentecost. It's when they come and offer the first fruit of their wheat harvest. But it has so many other implications to it that you see through Jewish tradition, and I, I, I want to look at it with you in the text of Scripture, right? So I'll try to give you that warning. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. And it says, and the day of Pentecost arrived, and they were all together in one place. All right, is everybody with me? Now, here's the interesting thing that I I see a lot of people go. They think that these 
these people were huddled up um, in this one place, the Feast of Pentecost, these believers, these 120 were here, and they were just kind of like just huddled up and scared. And I would go like, I don't really know about that. Because remember, Jesus is already resurrected. They already knew. And Jesus had been with them for 40 days. And it had been, and Jesus had just ascended 40 days before this. And it's been about 10 days since Jesus left. Jesus told them in Acts 1.8, the power, I will send the Holy Spirit who will give you power to carry out the gospel to the ends of the earth. So I don't think when the disciples were, this number was gathered here in this upper room, I don't think they were there because they were scared, afraid, or confused. I think they were together for a reason and a purpose. One would be this. It was the Feast of Pentecost. Now, it wasn't until later on that we see in some of the Jewish traditions that they kind of start going, hey, let's have kind of an all-nighter with studying the Torah and reading the book of Ruth. But it, 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 it's a quandary that sometimes things that get written down have been going on for a long time. In my mind, I wonder. They're gathered together. They know they're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. Jesus had promised this. He, he'd already resurrected, so I don't think they were afraid. They were waiting for the power that was promised for them to come. And in the back of their minds, I'm wondering if they're going, wait a minute. Jesus said, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Okay, wait a minute. At Pentecost, I mean like 10 days later after Jesus says that and ascends, 10 days later is going to be the Feast of Pentecost. And there is going to be a smorgasbord of people from all nations are going to be setting up right in Jerusalem. I wonder, they were gathered together in anticipation of something that was really going to happen. I don't know, I mean, just in my mind, I don't know if they were necessarily afraid at that point, thinking they were more in anticipation of what actually is going to be uh, happening here. So, when I read this, I just want you to know behind the scenes, and remember, years later, it seems to get codified in some of the Jewish writings that Jews should study the Torah all night. Were they possibly even studying the Torah? Were they studying what was going on? Where, and, and, and I don't know. It's, it's possible. But nonetheless, they're there. They're gathered. They're in one place. They're waiting for what God had promised. All nations are gathered in Jerusalem at this time for, for what's called the Feast of Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover. So I find this interesting. And I also don't think that it was any coincidence to them that they knew that Jesus was the fulfillment of Passover. Jesus' resurrection was the fulfillment of the first fruits of the barley harvest. And I wonder if they thought to themselves, well, what's next? Jesus had promised the Holy Spirit. Could this be the time that the Holy Spirit comes? I'm, I'm just wondering, is that a, a possibility? So we see they were gathered together. They were in one place. And possibly, behind the scenes... Were they already attaching themselves to what the significance of this time would be? I don't know. And I'll point something to you in verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So now we see the Holy Spirit coming, empowering them. Resting on them like tongues as of fire. Now what did that look like? I'm not really sure, guys. It just says tongues of fire. I'm, I'm not really exactly sure. But I do know this. Fire is involved, and it's something miraculous. The sound of, um, there seems to be kind of a, um, a, a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It, it seems to be something very special and different. Now, here's what I want you to bear in mind. Years later, especially you can find it written down as early as 140 AD, that the Jewish rabbis are saying... Basically, the first Pentecost, the first Shavuot, actually happened at Mount Sinai, right? Just track with me. If you look at, if you, if you track and look at it, when Israel leaves Egypt at the Passover, about 47 days later, they arrive at Mount Sinai. So, it, it, in, in the Jewish mind, it's not implausible. We see it written down as early as 140, but it's possible that it existed in the Jewish mind at that time. That Jewish people, even today, when they celebrate Pentecost, I mean, we're celebrating the giving of the Holy Spirit. The average Jewish home would actually be celebrating the giving of the law of God, the giving of the Ten Commandments to Moses at Mount Sinai. So most Jewish people, when they're, when they're there together, and they're reading the Torah this week, and they're talking about the Ten Commandments, they're celebrating and going, you know, Shavuot, the, the, the Pentecost, this actually commemorates the time that God gives His Word 
to the children of Israel, gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, speaks the Torah, speaks the, speaks the, speaks the truths of what would come in the first five books of the Old Testament, speaks it to Moses. And during this, this time, it's possible that even, even they already thought this. Now, here's why this is interesting. What if you were to tie those two things together? Jews today already think that. They think that the Feast of Pentecost actually is commemorated and happened at Sinai when the Lord gives the word. But what if they were thinking that even at that time? Even I want you to notice this, even the parallels of it. Because remember, in verse 2 you see fire, you see a mighty rushing wind. Now do this, hold your place there and go over to Exodus chapter 19, verse 7. I just want to read a couple verses from Exodus. This is the children of Israel at Mount Sinai, about 50 days later, after they've already left, left after they've already passed out of Egypt. And remember, the way God designed His feast was that the Feast of Pentecost came 50 days after the Passover. We find Israel at Mount Sinai 50 days after the Passover. Although we don't see that God had given them rules for Pentecost yet when they're at Sinai, we know that at Sinai... When, the, when, when Moses is up there, we know that he's given the Ten Commandments, and it's possible that it looks like God's already giving Moses some commandments on what all the feasts of Israel would look like. What was interesting is when you look at this, you find that there's some similarities that are uncanny. Now, I'm not saying those are connected like core doctrine, but I am saying we need to give it a consideration and a thought, and it brings me to an even bigger thought. And, and I'll show this to you. Look at Exodus 19. They're at Mount Sinai, children of Israel, Mount Sinai. It says this. And Moses came and called the elders of the people and set them before all uh, and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. It's basically Israel is saying, like, I agree to the marriage vows. God has brought us out of Egypt. He basically we we've been betrothed to him in Egypt. He delivered us. He's brought us into his home. We're now going to accept this. Yes, we will do what God has said. We will, we will obey the Ten Commandments. We will obey the civil and moral law that God has given Moses to communicate to us. We will obey this. Moses reported these words of all the people of the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud. By the way, have you ever looked at a Jewish wedding and noticed that they have like kind of a canopy that they put over the bride and groom? They put that over the bride and groom because they picture, they picture their marriage to God happening right here. This thick cloud, they parallel that kind of cam, canopy tent that Jewish people get married underneath as, you know, this is when God, this is when the vows were exchanged with God for Israel underneath this thick cloud and they use that as a symbolism. That's free. No stimulus, no stimulus check required for that one. That the people may hear when I speak with you, he says. So God says, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud at Mount Sinai that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. So basically God says, I'm going to communicate to these people. They're going to hear me. Um, now look in Exodus 19, 16 through 19. And in the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightnings and thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Now, when you have thunder and lightning and, and, and a thick cloud, I mean, it looks like there's some strong winds, some strong weather. I know this is a little bit conjecture here, but just hang with me. Verse 17, Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stu- stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, which many Jewish people would say, that trumpet sound was actually the voice of Yahweh. Moses spoke, and God answered him in a thunder. Now, it's interesting. We find it written down that Jewish people see that, that the Feast of Pentecost, the first one, actually was out Mount Sinai when God gave his word. Now, it's interesting. God gives his word to Israel at Mount Sinai, which we, we, we could suppose is the first Pentecost, and we find God giving his Holy Spirit at the Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Now what's interesting is God gives his word at Mount Sinai. God gives his spirit in Acts chapter 2. And you find in the scriptures this. The word of God and the Holy Spirit are always connected. Like if a person says I'm a spirit-filled person, that means they're a word-filled person. A word-filled person is a spirit-filled person. 
In fact, if you were to ever look at, um, if you're ever, you can write this down on the side, but if you were to ever look at uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, and Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, you find in Colossians 3, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching, admonishing one another in wisdom, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, and thankfulness to your heart. Colossians 3.16 says, The word of Christ, sing, sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, thanksgiving to the Lord. Ephesians 5 says this, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody, giving thanksgiving, always in your heart to the Lord. What's interesting is the word of God makes this parallel. A spirit-filled person is a word-filled person. A word-filled person is a spirit-filled person. And you find this. I don't know, is it a coincidence that on Mount, the Jewish people sell it? I mean, part of them, they attached the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, the giving of God's word, the Ten Commandments, his civil moral law at Mount Sinai. And then we have at Pentecost, God giving his Holy Spirit. Those two interconnecting and coming together. I, I wonder, is there, is there, is, I mean, and it's interesting. You see the fire of God on Mount Sinai, right? In Acts chapter 2, what do you see? The fire of God coming on Mount Zion in Jerusalem to empower them with the Holy Spirit. Do you, do you understand the connection that happens here? The, the Jewish people had already saw this, but I wonder, I wonder if a Jewish person at that time saw the parallel in, in, with that. Because for the Jewish people, the giving of God's law was central to their life. And these Jews in Acts chapter 2, when, when they're already there, possibly celebrating not only the harvest feast, but part of that in their mind, they think, is we're celebrating the, 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 what God giving the law at Sinai, that they go like, like the Lord gave us his leading, by, gave us his word and leading him out Sinai. Now he's given us his leading by the Holy Spirit and the connection of these two together. It's, it's just uncanny. You see the voice of God at Mount Sinai. Now you see the voice of God helping with miraculous tongues at Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And by the way, even it's interesting this. You remember that when Moses was getting the law, like there's some that rebelled, built the calf, right? And remember how many people died? 3,000, right? 3,000 died who disobeyed the Lord and built that golden calf at Mount Sinai. But in Acts chapter 2, how many people do we see coming to faith through the work of the Holy Spirit? 3,000. So listen, I'm not saying they're connected, but I'm saying it just looks kind of suspicious. Are y'all with me on this? Do you understand? And by the way, here's what it does for me. For me. It's just my own application of Scripture. When I read this and I study it, I start to go, wait a minute. If, I mean, it seems plausible when I study, when you look at the, de- the, the, the timing of Israel leaving Egypt and coming to Sinai, it looks like, I, I can kind of get it about 47 days. It looks like they're right there at that 50th day and it's uncanny. The Lord gives His Word, and the Lord gives the Holy Spirit, and these two work together. And so it just, it just makes me wonder. Now, by the way, later on in Jewish sources, I find this is interesting. In Jewish sources, like the Talmud. And the Talmud, now I'm not saying this is true, but this is just in Jewish tradition, in Jewish rabbis, in some of their writings. Here's some things they say that are very interesting. In the Talmud, it is written that every single word that went forth from God on Mount Sinai was split up into 70 languages for the nations of the world, which would be interesting if you're Jewish and you're in Jerusalem and you know that and that idea even exists traditionally in your culture, although written down later. Would you start to wonder like, wait a minute, we've been talking about the omnipotent God at Mount Sinai, that when he communicated this in our Jewish kind of folklore, we thought that, that God was communicating this to all the Jews all throughout the world. And at the same time, you're there in Acts chapter two and you're Jewish and you're hearing the message of God presented in all the different nationality languages in the world right there. Are y'all with me? Do y'all kind of understand this, the uniqueness of the moment? In rabbinical tradition, it, it, it said that the soul of every Jew throughout history was present at Mount Sinai when the law was given. And each Jewish person throughout history heard the giving of the law in their own native tongue. Now, I'm not saying that's true. I'm saying that's rabbinic tradition. But one makes me wonder, was that in the back of the Jewish minds? as the Holy Spirit unleashes and as the message of God is being heard through the miraculous gift of tongues at that moment? I don't know. It's just a very interesting. So I find this, to get, I find this for, for myself. Um, what, a, what, 
What a re-emphasis in my mind that if, as I look at Pentecost this week and as Thursday night hits, sun goes down, like I'm hoping my soul kind of goes like, listen, if I'm going to be a spirit-led person, I must be a word-led person. If I'm, gonna, if I'm a word-led person, I'll be a spirit-led person. And, and, and also I'm brought to this idea. Nothing that God does is a coincidence. God's hand is so sovereign. It's so moving. It touches so many things. Like it's thinking way ahead of where I ever thought, right? So like God puts in in Leviticus 23 specifically that they were to worship and do this feast at this time, 50 days after, after the Passover, and then years later, that's a part of God's sovereign plan for the exact time that God would bring the Holy Spirit and ignite the church for the globalization of the gospel, right? It's just, it just makes me go like God is so sovereign. Like, if you're worried about the coronavirus, just look back at this and go, wait a minute. God had planned the details of a feast that years later, he was going to use that exact feast day to mirror and match when the Holy Spirit would come upon God's people to empower them. And years before, God would be giving his word at Mount Sinai to empower his people to spread the good news of what the one true God was like. Like, this just makes me kind of get a little more comfortable with what's going around. Like, just as the Feast of Pentecost, its original institution in, uh, in Leviticus 23, or if it actually was meant to commemorate Mount Sinai, it just tells me that God's so sovereign in everything that he does. Everything's so planned and calculated. Nothing's happening haphazard or accidentally. Like, all this is according to his plan. Now, look in verse 4. Are y'all still with me? Or are you okay? Okay? I may be confusing the mess out of you this morning, and so you can come ask me your questions at a six-foot distance afterwards, right? That's okay. Look at verse 4. Now, they were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That's interesting. We see the connection of the Word and the Spirit. Now look at verse 5. Now there was dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Remember, it's Feast of Pentecost. This is one of the pilgrim festivals, all right? One of three. This one you were to be at. If you were Jewish, especially a Jewish man, you traveled there. And if you lived there, you were already there. You were there at the temple. And at the sound, the multitude came together... And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. This gift of tongues is happening, remember? In verse 7, And they were all amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in his own native language, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Pyrogea, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, proselytes, proselytes were Gentiles who wanted into the Jewish religion. That they were allowed to worship the one true God, but they didn't have all the rights and privileges of being a part of the Jewish community. Christians and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now I want you to notice something interesting here. We, we see the Jewish people and also proselytes. Now those proselytes... They were Gentiles, seen as kind of the dirty outsiders, right? But they wanted to worship the one true God. They were like the Ruth. In the Bible, Ruth is a Gentile. She's not Jewish, but she attaches herself to the Jewish people, wanting to worship the one true Yahweh God of the Jewish people. Now hold your place in Acts 2 and look at Leviticus 23. Now here's what's interesting. Now once again, this may be a stretch and conjecture, but it just it seems so unique I have to say something about it. Look in Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23 is where God, is where Moses is telling the people from kind of a priestly standpoint of how the Feast of Pentecost is to work. If you look in Deuteronomy 16, you find out it talks about Pentecost, but it's kind of from a layman's understanding of Pentecost. So we get really specific in Leviticus 23. And I want you to notice something about this Feast of Pentecost, what it was to look like. Verse 15 of Leviticus 23. By the way, I understand if you're kind of like, man, this is... I needed more coffee for this. Like, where's our coffee bar during this time? Well, I'm sorry it's not open, right? So get up and make a circle around. Hopefully you get something from this. If you don't, next week will be much better. Or maybe not. I don't know. That's not my power. Verse 15. <clears throat> this is that Feast of Pentecost. Moses is, is dictating it, describing it to Israel, what it's going to look like. It seems like he probably got the... the Instructions for this on Mount Sinai 
written at possibly a later point. We know at least the Ten Commandments were written on Mount Sinai. Verse 15. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath. That's that Shavat, seven full weeks. From the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. That's that grain first fruit wave offering of barley that was to happen the day after the Passover. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. And the grain offering they offered at Pentecost was not barley. That was earlier, 50 days before. It's the wheat offering. You shall bring them from your dwelling place, two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with, what does it say? Leaven. What? Leaven. As first reached to the Lord. Now here's my question. Why leaven? I thought leaven represented sin. I thought 50 days before at Passover and then, the, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread that went seven days after that, you were supposed to clean your house as a Jewish person of all leaven. I thought that Passover meant no leaven whatsoever because leaven in the Scriptures represents sin. Why 50 days later would God command them to put leaven inside your bread and have leavened bread that you're offering as a wave offering when that was a no-no 50 days before. Are you all with me on that, right? Why? Well, simply put, I don't know. But I find some interesting things when I look at the residue of what God seems to be doing in the totality of Scripture. So this is what I'm saying. Some of this is conjecture. I'm just, I find it interesting. Why would God do that? Why would God say, put some leaven in it? Well, a couple things. Leaven does represent sin in the scripture. But if you were to read Matthew chapter 13, verse 33, you, were to, you would find the parable of, of heaven that says this. And the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. Now, leaven represents sin in the scripture. But here in this kingdom parable, leaven represents like the kingdom of heaven growing. Okay? So even the fact that there's a commendable part of leaven. Like, yeah, leaven can represent sin, but leaven can also be viewed as the kingdom of God is growing and expanding. Now, what's interesting is, in Acts chapter 2, you have all these Jews that are there, but you also have the proselytes, who are kind of considered the dirty, unleavened Gentiles. We're going to let them have a little bit of, 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 of worshiping the one true God, but they're not all the way in with us. And yet, who is being brought into that kingdom together at the same time with the Jewish people? Who is... Level before the ground of the cross, just like the Jewish people when the Messiah comes. Who is Who equally receives the gift of the Holy Spirit just as the Jewish people do, Gentiles? If you read like the book of Acts, you want to know what the Jewish people, the early Jewish Christians struggled with so much in the beginning? What was it? Are these Gentiles allowed to hang out with us? Or do they, we got to make them Jews first. I mean, is, is the resurrection of Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit, is that enough? I mean, why do you even see the Holy Spirit coming on at a separate point later in Acts, like with the Samaritans and the Gentiles? Not because there's some separate Holy Spirit transaction now at salvation. You get the Holy Spirit at salvation is because God was making sure that, the, that, that all the Jews understood that the Samaritans and Gentiles, they got their own Pentecost just like you got that, that the 11 Gentiles... They're mixed in with the Jews. The, the leaven gets in with, with everybody else. At the same time, you find that the kingdom of God blows up and expands like leaven, like yeast inside of bread. It grows. I mean, in Acts chapter 2, what do we find? The, the, we find the church exploding instantly. I mean, they go from a couple hundred followers to... Boom, 3,000. And then you start reading the book of Acts and the gospel is making itself all the way out. So I find this. I read, I read about Leviticus 23 and find like, God, why would you put leaven right there? Well, could that leaven be there that God was using it years later to point towards something bigger that he was going to do at the Feast of Pentecost, at that same festival that, act, that Leviticus 23 is talking about, that there was going to be this first fruits, which just leads me to this thought. Jesus is the first fruits of the barley harvest, but what seems to be the first fruits of of the wheat harvest, God's Holy Spirit coming 
and bringing Jew and Gentile together and bringing his gospel to the ends of the earth, that leaven that happens, that explosion that we see. Now, I'm not going to sit here and go, absolutely, that's what God's doing, but I am going to say this. I find too many like traces of what's going on here to make me go, like, why would God say this one feast had leaven and all the others didn't? Are y'all with me? Do you understand kind of what I'm trying to communicate? I don't even know if what I'm communicating makes sense, right? And if it doesn't for you and it doesn't for you online, I'm sorry. But boy, I really worshiped God this week when I was studying this, right? I got really excited, so sorry, all right? But the Holy Spirit gave it to me. So I find this interesting. Nothing happens by coincidence, guys. That God is designed, like this New Testament's not disconnected from the Old Testament and you're like, when you read Leviticus, and you read Leviticus 23, and just like, okay, great. Okay, take this flour, mix with leaven, wave before the Lord, big deal. What's the big deal? Well, I wonder, at the Feast of Pentecost, when Gentiles are getting saved, and, the, and, the, and they're waving these two pieces of leavened bread that were forbidden 50 days before, but now they've got it, and they're waving it before the Lord, that these Gentiles and these Jews are going like, oh, wait a minute, I see that. Even more, if you were to look in Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about Jesus being our sacrifice and that sacrifice bringing peace between Jew and Gentile. And in fact, it, in, that, in the text of Ephesians 2, it says that, 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 that Jesus was basically the peace offering. And one of the offerings of many that were offered during the Feast of Pentecost was a peace offering. And Jesus actually brings peace between Jew and Gentile. That's what's, what's interesting. This is what's so um, amazing about the gospel message it brought together it brought someone else into this jewish tradition and if you know anything if you know someone who's ho- hardcore orthodox jew you do not get into that crowd very easily as a gentile right i mean i've asked before i've asked very orthodox jews before and, and said hey can i come to synagogue with you in worship and what do you think the answer was no of course i'm just like wait a minute I mean, God designed you to give the gospel to me, so wouldn't you want me to come with you? In fact, I mean, like, I mean, like, you know, the, the Egyptians were allowed, some of these Egyptians were allowed to hang on to the Israelites as they're crossing out. I mean, we find proselytes among the Jews uh, at the Feast of Pentecost, but I digress. So we see here. Isn't it amazing? Just the connection. So this is not, you might think like, oh, this is just some Jewish feast. And, and I would say, you're not required to observe it like, like, Leviticus 23, but I would say this, you probably missed something special about your walk with Christ if when sundown Thursday night comes, there isn't something in your soul that says, thank you for the word of God, thank you for the Holy Spirit. And I'm just telling you this, if you're kind of like, you know what, I'm going to party all night, right? Like, Thursday night might be the night to party all night, man, like, get open the scriptures, like, turn off the stupid Netflix binging that we're all doing, right? And just, like, spend some time, like, gather your family. If you're kind of like, Nick, where is the creative outline of what we could do as a family? If you'll email me, I've got this whole outline of what you could use to just worship as a family who is trying to, trying to see that, like, Jesus is the, Jesus fulfilled Pentecost by, the, by bringing the Holy Spirit. He fulfilled Passover. He fulfilled the first fruits that happened on living bread through the barley, the waving of the barley sheep. And he fulfilled even the first fruits of Pentecost by bringing his Holy Spirit. Okay, is everybody with me so far? All right. Now, look at verse 29 later in Acts 2.29. You know what also, I'm not saying this is true, but in, in Jewish tradition... Guess what day they believe King David was born, and guess what day they believe King David died? The Pentecost, right? Because I'm like talking about it, right? Okay, okay. Now, when Peter gets up and he's preaching the message of the gospel, whose name does he ring up to kind of point out about Jesus and his resurrection? David. See, even if you were to go to Jerusalem this week, all right, and you were to go and you were to be there at sundown this Thursday... They have a time where they commemorate even King David, his, his, his um, being, uh, being born and die. Now watch what he does. Watch what Peter does in Acts 2.29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, being there for a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. So basically Peter says like, hey, you never saw David resurrect. Like he's still dead. He's still in the tomb. 
He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Though this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out on this, you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So he basically, Peter says, who was David talking about? Let all, verse 36, let all the house of Israel know therefore it's certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So basically he says, hey, today's the day you celebrate his birth and his death. And guess what? You, you, he's, in, he's in the grave today. And when he speaks about him being alive and his Lord saying to the, uh, this, his Lord saying to the Lord, he's pointing to Jesus. So even this, even Peter's using what they even believe in the Jewish faith. Keep going. I want to point out a couple other things to you that I find are very interesting. Verse 42, you find the early church, they're coming together. They're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and in fellowship. They're breaking bread and, and in prayers. They're all together. You know what they're doing? They're loving God and loving each other together. You know what, actually, Pentecost for the Jewish, it celebrates Mount Sinai. What did they get at Mount Sinai? Once again, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are basically the first four about loving God. The last six are about loving each other. It's basically the great commandment. Look at verse 44. I also find something else interesting. Verse 44 and 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I find this. Holy Spirit comes... Church is empowered. Gospel's going out. And do you know what happened in... If you were to turn over to Leviticus 23 and 22, part of that harvest was that you were supposed to leave a section of your field untouched so that the poor could come in and glean afterwards. Like in Leviticus 23, it says this, when you reap the harvest of your land, that wheat harvest for Pentecost, you shall not reap your field right to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor... And for the sojourner, I am the Lord your God. Interesting. God tells them at this harvest, leave something for the poor. We see years later at the Feast of Pentecost in response to God's word and the Holy Spirit that even the early church is trying to leave something for the poor. Even the poor aren't being left out. So guys, some of what I've told you this morning may be some, you know, I'm using some Jewish tradition. Man, to see the timing of God bringing them out of Egypt 50 days later at Mount Sinai, getting God's word and seeing that we get God's spirit, the parallels between what happened at Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, and seeing, seeing what God had done through this feast and festival at Pentecost, man, nothing's, it just, it's just uncanny to me sometimes about what's happening. So I'll tell you this week, this is a great week for you if you've got someone who's, who's Jewish to give them the gospel message. If there's ever a week that you were like, you know what, I want to fall back in love with the Word of God. You want to know some of the best times to spend time in God's Word? It's at night. You know, you know what my best study times are? When I can't go to sleep. Because during the day, everybody's trying to get a hold of you, right? Your family needs things, people need things, your work needs things. But you know what's really great about nighttime? No one wants anything from you. Why? Because everybody else is asleep. You ever want to grow in your relationship with the Lord? This is what I love about these feasts and festivals God had for Israel. It not only pointed towards Christ, but it was a time to renew their soul and worship the Lord. Like, what would happen to your soul if you, this coming week, like, spent time that evening and said, man, I'm going to read the book of Ruth. Man, I'm going to read God's law. Man, I'm going to read, I'm going to read what God's been doing in the New Testament. Now, here's the last thing. By the way, I would love to sit here and give you a standing ovation. Actually, I can. I am standing. I can do that. All right. You have endured... A very detailed, and I fear, scatterbrained message. <laughs> but here's what I love about the Feast of Pentecost this week. And what I love about studying this, and really just blew my mind. And when I start, when studying this this week, it's something I've never caught, right? This is what I would love to end with. All the other fe feasts, it seems that they have like, this is when you do it. This is the date that you do the Passover. This is when you do, this is the date for you to do the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is when you do the Feast of Trumpets in coordination with the new moon. But you know what's interesting? 
Pentecost has no date to it. Like, it's not like, do Pentecost on this day. No. What does it say? You do Pentecost 50 days after Passover. Now, you might be going, big deal, Nick. Well, it is a big deal. Why is that? Because you can't know when it's time for Pentecost until you know when the Passover happens. And you can't celebrate the giving of the Holy Spirit without looking back to the cross as the reason that you got it to begin with. And you can't do any work in the gospel that, that, that Pentecost has empowered you to do if you don't keep looking back to the gospel of Jesus Christ through the Passover. What's interesting is this. It, got, it has no date because God has designed Pentecost to make you keep looking towards the cross. Which, once again, just studying this this week... I just wanted to run circles around my block, but as I'm afraid what everybody would think about this chubby guy just running sprints around the neighborhood. Like, this is amazing. Why is there no date? Because we all have to keep going back to the cross with it. Jesus is the true Passover. Every time I am thankful for what the Holy Spirit's work is in my life, I look back to Jesus. It's all through him. And what's interesting is this. When you look in Acts chapter 2, now, when you read the book of Acts... You can see Acts 1-8, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. You can see that kind of happening through the life of Paul. You can see that happening as persecution comes on the church. But you know where you can also see it? You can see it right there in Acts chapter 2. Because who is sitting in Jerusalem? All these people from other nations, right? All these other Jews who get saved. And what do many of them do? They go back to where they came from. And what do they do? They start spreading the gospel, which... Once again, just made me want to run a couple more laps, just going like, God is the one that is electing and sovereign over this whole entire thing. Even before Peter, even before Paul could move out, even before persecution shoved Christianity out to fulfill Acts 1-8, already God is doing for himself. Already God is doing what only God can do. The power of the gospel through the work of the Holy Spirit is already accomplishing his plan. And I just don't think that the apostles and disciples who are gathering, who are Jewish, and understand what God has always done through these festivals and feasts and saw Jesus fulfill the Passover and the first fruits of the barley harvest as a part of the unleavened bread feast. I don't think there was anything in their mind that thought, well, Pentecost is just going to come and go and God's not going to do anything great. I think they were gathered in prayer. I think they were gathered in anticipation they knew that God was going to do something that only God could do. God was going to bring the power to accomplish 1-8. And that's exactly what God did, has done, and is doing and will do through us. Worship team, you make your way up here. And I would say this. As we close out, um, maybe as you hear this, this, hear this message, maybe you're thinking to yourself, Hey, I, I just have some goals this week. Man, this has inspired me. Like, would you pray for me? So, once again... Um, we're going to sing a song. I'm going to come up here, and you can do this. If um, you've got like a goal this week of I want to share the gospel, I've got a Jewish friend, or I could be a Gentile, but man, Pentecost has convinced me that like, man, the Holy Spirit's given this week. I've got the power of the Holy Spirit in my life to share this. Like, I got some goals. Text me nine zero one three zero four nine nine seven nine, and and I want to I'll, anonymously. I'll just share that with our body before we leave. So we can just pray over that, some goals that you have to, to share the gospel. Maybe it could be a family member, friend, and you're just going to say, like, pray for me. I have this goal this week, right? Could we do that? Would you pray with me? Thank you for giving us the time to gather, to look towards the Great Commission, to glory in you, to look at Pentecost and realize all, that, all that's wrapped up into that feast, it's pregnant with meaning for our life. Let us exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen.